James chapter 4, and this morning we're just going to be primarily focusing on uh, verses 4 through verse 6, but I'll begin reading at uh, verse 1 and read through verse 6. So James chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 1. Let's again listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let us seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this passage, we pray that your spirit would give us understanding and insight to open our hearts and our minds, to see the truth that is here, to be able to apply it even to our own hearts and our own lives, and to equip us to be faithful saints for your glory. Father, we just ask now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, consistency, consistency between what you profess and, and how you live your lives has been an overarching theme here in the book of James. And so how you treat others, how you speak, uh, the wisdom that you seek and follow, all these should be consistent with your profession of faith in Christ. And if there's such consistency, well then peace and unity is going to flourish not only in your lives, but also in the midst of the body of Christ the church. In our passage this morning, James once again weaves in this theme. Consistency between our profession and who we choose to align ourselves with in the way that we live our lives. Do we show ourselves to be friends of the world? Or friends of God? If we're friends of the world, then we're a foe of God and He will oppose us. But if we're a true friend of God, we know that He longs for us to walk with Him and He will actually give us the very grace that we need to do just what He calls us to do. And so this is what we discover this morning as we consider the problem, the promise, and the provision And first, the problem. And it's a big problem. It's a big problem that James doesn't tiptoe around in verse 4 when he says, adulterers and adulteresses. I can imagine, shocked and stunned to silence, likely would have been the initial response of those first reading this letter. You see, because up to this point in the letter, although James has been very firm and, and very direct, He's been quite cordial in in addressing these believers. 
In fact, nine times he's referred to them as either my brethren or my beloved brethren. But here, seemingly out of nowhere, he he pierces them with strong words of condemnation, adulterers and adulteresses. Now we know, again, James has been driving home this point about consistency. And yes, he's already addressed some some moral issues like favoritism and discrimination and sinful words and bitter envy and self-ambition. But to now suddenly single out one particular moral issue, adultery, again, it seems kind of disjointed. Was there adultery going on among the body of believers? Well, certainly this is a possible But again, even if it were, to suddenly insert the issue here just seems kind of out of place. Now some translations make the charge even more pointed by seemingly singling out just women who are sinning in this way when he says adulteresses. right? So it just has the word adulteresses. And so were only the women guilty of this sin. Now other translations... Uh, as we have here in the New King James, broadens this charge with adulterers and adulteresses, or some have you adulterous people. And though this works to include more people, right? in fact, it actually then includes everyone, no one is, is then left out, but only makes the insertion of such a charge all the more puzzling. Were all the believers guilty of the sin of adultery and marital unfaithfulness? But again, even if that was James' point, it still doesn't seem to fit the context. So, so what's going on here? Well, first we should note that the textual differences between adulteresses or adulterers and adulteresses really has little impact on our understanding. In fact, uh, simply using only the feminine form of the word would be sufficient. As... Because it, but again, it, not, it doesn't just mean that only the women were committing this sin. In fact, James doesn't even use the word to speak about the physical sin of adultery at all. James is here speaking of spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery that's being committed by the whole body of believers when they forsake the commands that Christ has given and pursue their own sinful pleasures and desires. Now James' primarily Jewish audience would have quickly picked up on the use of these highly charged words and and they would have recognized them as the key charge that God laid against His people in the Old Testament. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the relationship between God and His covenant people Israel is pictured as a relationship between a husband and his wife in the covenant of marriage. Israel was God's glorious bride, whom He chose for Himself and graciously entered into a covenant with her. And we see this, for example, in in the prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 54 Isaiah says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused. 
And so this idea of, of Israel being uh, in this covenant of marriage relationship with God, again, we find throughout the whole Old Testament Scriptures. And yet the people of Israel committed adultery. And they violated the marriage covenant that, made, that, that uh, was made with the Lord, who was their husband. The sin of adultery is pursuing someone who isn't your husband or wife. It's a violation of the seventh commandment, a violation of the one flesh marriage union between one man and, and one woman that God established all the way back at creation. And so Israel committed spiritual adultery when she turned away from the Lord and sought after and worshipped the false gods and idols of the surrounding nations. And so we see then that the sin of idolatry is itself spiritual adultery. And this was most graphically exposed, of course, by the prophet Hosea. And Hosea 1, uh, again, it's a, it becomes a great challenge the Lord charged Hosea, when the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. And so Hosea's own marriage with an adulteress was to be a, a picture of the Lord's covenant relationship with Israel, that has now been violated and defiled by her idolatry and her unfaithfulness in seeking after other gods. Now, though James here pulls this imagery from the past, he's not using it, though, now to describe Israel's relationship with God. No, James is now applying this to those who are believers in Christ Jesus. Because in the New Testament, the church is God's covenant people. And it's the church that's the precious, beloved bride of Christ for whom He gave Himself. Paul declares in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The church is the bride of Christ. And these believers to whom James is writing are in a covenant relationship with Christ. They're in a, in a covenant of marriage, even as we are with Christ our Savior and our Redeemer. And yet here, those to whom James is writing have violated this covenant. They've defiled the marriage bond. And they brought shame to themselves and shame to the name of Jesus by committing spiritual adultery. Well, how did they do this? James reveals the cause of this adulterous affair in verse 4. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, it's their friendship with the world that's violating their covenant relationship with God. 
Now, we first have to understand what does James mean here by friendship with the world because people can take that in various different directions. Well, he doesn't mean that they simply ought not to have any friends who are unbelievers. No, in fact, as Christians, as those who are called to be witnesses to others, we ought to have friends who are in the world. James isn't saying that that they should then withdraw from the world and cut themselves off from interacting with unbelievers. Now, this would defeat the purpose which Christ has given. Now, we're to be in the world, but not of it. And being in the world means that we would have friends, neighbors, even family members who aren't believers in Christ. And we're called to interact with them and be a gospel witness to them, not pull ourselves back from them. We're to share the light of Christ in our words, in our deeds with them. Indeed, we can't be faithful with the Great Commission if we just pull back and isolate ourselves from those who are in desperate need of the Gospel. No, we need to be out there. We need to be mixing and mingling with them to be able to share the Gospel with them. And so James isn't condemning having friends in the world. Now, there might be wisdom in, obviously, those friends not being your closest friends or your best friends, because then they could lead you astray. But certainly you can have friends who are unbelievers, and you ought to, if you want to be a faithful witness of the gospel and to help fulfill that great commission. Now, James is condemning their friendship with the world itself. That is, with the whole fallen sinful system that stands in opposition to God. John, uh, the Apostle John, uh, speaks of it this way in 1 John 2. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. That's what we're to stay away from. Worldliness. Worldliness is driven by worldly wisdom with its bitter envy and selfish ambition. It's characterized by forsaking of the needs of others in order to fulfill your own needs. It's demonstrated in showing favoritism towards some and discriminating against others for personal gain. It's marked by an untamed tongue that tears down and destroys. And instead of caring for the needy, this worldliness puffs with pride and pursues sinful pleasures. Simply put, friendship with the world is the idolatry of self because it all focuses on what I can do for myself. And where there's idolatry again of any kind, there's going to be spiritual adultery. And so these believers were committing spiritual adultery against God Because they made an idol out of self. Now, if there's anything that would characterize our own society and culture today, it's it's this kind of idolatry. The pursuit of one's own pleasure and and selfish ambitions and self-fulfillment are the pillars of our culture. 
And it's only the casting off of God and His... Or it's not only just casting off God and His laws, but it's actually making these sinful pleasures and pursuits our chief pursuit instead of seeking after the glory of God and the righteousness of His kingdom. Instead of seeking God and His kingdom and His righteousness, we seek what's good for ourselves. And to share in this sinful mindset is to align oneself closely with the world. Making the world your friend. And as James makes very clear here, a friend of the world is no friend of God. In fact, being friends with the world is a hostile, rebellious assault against God and against His holiness. And if you assault God and His holiness, well then certainly you're no friend of God, but you're a foe and an enemy. And James is making then a very serious charge here. He's warning them that continued pursuit of selfish idolatry is going to put them at odds with God. Living the way that the world lives instead of living in the way that Christ has called you to live is committing that kind of spiritual adultery. You're betraying the love of the One who redeemed you and who saved you from Satan's sin and death. You're betraying the love of the One who gave Himself so that you might be forgiven and reconciled to God. What does that say about your spiritual condition? Well, John, again, takes the warning one step further. This time in 1 John 2, he said, uh, verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, if you're friends with the world, and, the, and you love the world, well, then you're an enemy of God. And though you might profess to believe in God and Christ, well then it's quite possible that the love of the Father isn't truly in you. And that your profession may not be true and sincere. And so you see again, it all comes back to this theme of of consistency. Because you can't profess one thing and then live out something else. You can't say that you're a Christian if you cling to the attitudes, to the lifestyles, and the manners of the world. You can't be friends with both God and the world. It has to be one or the other. It can't be both. Indeed, Jesus declares this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, He says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And we can certainly insert there, you cannot serve God and the world. If you're a friend of the world, and you love the world, then the sin of the world is going to enslave you. And you won't only live the way that the world lives, but you're also going to hate that which the world hates, including the light and the goodness and the truth of God. But, if you're truly a friend of God, well then turn away from the things of the world. Turn away from its attitudes, its pursuits, and manner of living and seek to live your lives in the way that Christ has called you to live, pursuing righteousness, holiness, goodness, and truth all to the glory of God. To do anything else 
beloved, is to commit spiritual adultery. Now, from James' perspective, this is exactly what his readers were doing. But again, James writes this as an admonishment, right? As a, as a way to convict and challenge them, not just to beat them down, but to get them to change their ways. Because he loves them, because he cares for them. Again, it's important to remember that he's writing to, to believers. They, they aren't lost. Again, though, as we noted, the way that they're living is, is putting them at odds with God and, and it's bringing the sincerity of their profession into question, which is why James is writing this warning to them. But James now goes on after kind of lambasting them with this heart, this challenging admonishment. He now reminds them of, ever, of a very significant promise in verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain... The spirit he dwells in us yearns jealously. Now, I call this a promise, but before I explain why, we first need to deal with some significant difficulties with this verse. This is a challenging verse. Uh, In the New Testament, And uh, interpreters, uh, translators, commentators disagree as to what this verse is saying. And there's no consensus about this. And it's not necessarily a textual issue, because the text is the same, it's just, where do you put uh, what words? Right? So the uncertainty about, uh, it really boils down to this, about the word spirit. Does the word spirit here refer to the Holy Spirit, or does it refer to the human spirit? So that's one issue. The other issue is whether or not that word spirit is the subject or the object of the sentence. Now of all the the possibilities that there are, as far as translating this this verse and understanding it, there seems to be two main camps. One that gives the verse a negative sense, and the other kind of more of a positive sense. The negative sense would take the word spirit as referring to the human spirit, and place it as the subject of the sentence. And so, for example, this would be the the, the translation of the King James. Uh, The spirit that that, that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Now, from this perspective, James is simply continuing his description of worldliness, right? The spirit that dwells in us is a sin-bound, the remnant of the flesh that dwells in us, is a sin-bound spirit that desires envy and presumably Every evil thing as well. And this is certainly true of our fallen sinful nature. And this finds support even in the fact that the word envy or jealousy is never used in the New Testament in a positive light. And so understanding the verse this way also helps to draw a contrast to grace that is then mentioned in verse 6. But again, it has more of a negative tone because it's saying you're just really lousy people. But the positive understanding of the verse is that the word spirit is the object of the sentence. And depending on the translation, could either refer to the human spirit given at creation or to the Holy Spirit. And so, for example, in the New American Standard, it says this, He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. And here, 
God is the subject, and He is the one who jealously desires the Holy Spirit that He has placed in us. Now, if you have the NIV or the ESV, are very similar to this, although it is the human spirit that God uh, jealously desires. And so these positive renditions have the sense of saying that God basically has a claim on us by virtue of His work in us. Whether it is uh, whether it be uh, the Spirit uh, that He breathed into us when we were born, or the Holy Spirit that is now at work in us. That God has a great zeal for His creatures, especially those who are His in Christ. Now, some translations and commentators have other ways of understanding this verse, but these two, this positive or this negative and this positive view, are the the main ways. Of course, a further difficulty here is that as you read this verse, it looks like James is actually quoting from the scriptures of the Old Testament. And again, translators convey this further by adding quotation marks. And of course, we know quotation marks uh, are not there in the Greek. But the problem here is that such a quotation, whether it's in the the positive or the negative form, such a quotation isn't found anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures. It's not even found in, in extra biblical writings or the Apocrypha. But this dilemma is solved though when we consider that James, although he makes a direct quotation in verse 6, is here simply making kind of a blanket statement, summarizing the general teaching of Scripture. That's not really uh, confined to any one particular verse. He's just kind of summarizing, this is the teaching of Scripture. And certainly for either negative or positive understandings, we can find this general theme of both being taught throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. So what is James here then referring to? Well, though the negative view would fit in the broader context, it seems as though the immediate context would favor a more positive view. And this is what we really have here in the New King James, which although it puts spirit as the subject, it identifies the spirit as the Holy Spirit, and so it then still retains the positive aspect. And so it's this, the spirit who dwells in us yearns, Jealously. The Holy Spirit that dwells in us yearns jealously for us. You see, this fits the immediate context of James speaking of believers and not unregenerate sinners. But it more especially clarifies that covenant relationship of marriage inferred in verse 4 and illustrates further why spiritual adultery is so offensive to God. He's a righteous and holy God who is jealous for His bride, His people, the church. Now this isn't the unhinged envy and jealousy of human sinfulness. But it's the perfect and pure jealousy or zeal God has for His own holiness. See, His desire is that all which is called by His name would be holy, pure, and undefiled, including His people. And it's no surprise then that we find this perfect jealousy in the second commandment, which condemns idolatry. The second commandment is this, 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. God is a jealous God. He doesn't want us to serve anyone else. Because everyone else is a false god and an idol. We're to serve Him and Him alone. And so the the key then is that by befriending the world and seeking to imitate the sinful idolatry of self which drives the world, those to whom James was writing were committing this spiritual adultery. They were living as enemies of God. And so he reminds them of the covenant bond that they have with God. That God is a jealous God. And even now, even in the midst of their sin, he's actually still calling them to turn from their adulterous uh, idolatry and return to the one who so greatly loved them that he sent his only begotten son to suffer and die for them. He's jealous for his holy name. And since they bear His name because of the blood of Jesus Christ, He won't give up on that pursuit of holiness. So that one day they too, and even us, will be holy as He is holy. And so the promise here then is that God hasn't cast them off. He will complete the work that He began in them. Yes, they're in danger and He's warning them, but God has not cast them off. He's jealous for them. And He seeks after them to pursue them. To restore them in holiness. But how are they going to get there? How will they return and be restored in their covenant relationship with the Lord? James continues and shows them that God will even provide the help and the means to them to accomplish what He calls them to do. Verse 6, But He gives more grace Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, the only way that they'll be able to return and persevere in their calling, the only way that they'll be able to cut off their friendship with the world and overcome its tyranny in their lives is by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He gives more grace. And it's a grace greater than the world and all that's in the world. A grace that truly overcomes the world, overcomes sin, idolatry, and spiritual adultery. James isn't speaking here of a saving grace per se. That is, he isn't referring to the grace that first saves a sinner, for they're already saved, at least as far as, as he knows, based on their profession. They already have received this saving grace. And they've already come to faith in Christ. And so he isn't telling them that you need to be born again, again. No, they're already born again. No, the more or greater grace that he's speaking of here is the continued flow of daily grace that God graciously renews for us each and every day. It's an all-sufficient grace freely given to strengthen us in our daily battle against sin, against Satan's temptations, and especially the idolatry of self. It's more grace that enables us to put off the old man of sin and to put on the new way of living in Christ Jesus. It's the greater grace which we ought to seek and rely on each and every day through the means of of the Lord has given 
especially through prayer and the reading of His Word. And also the grace that we receive to help us grow in faith as we gather together on the Lord's Day for worship through prayer, the reading, the preaching, and the singing of God's Word. And through the celebration of the sacraments. We're encouraged in grace. In this more grace that the Lord gives and this greater grace that He bestows upon us. God gives more grace to the weak and weary pilgrims that we are. As we travel through the challenges of this life in our journey to perfection and holiness and glory. This is the grace which God freely supplies to those who would humble themselves before Him as they see their need and cry out to Him fully dependent on His grace and mercy. Friends, He gives more grace even to His people who may be burdened with sin in their lives. Even to those struggling with spiritual adultery. He gives more grace when they humble themselves before Him and acknowledge that they can't do it alone. He truly does give you more grace. But in this quote in verse 6 from Proverbs 3, James also intends a severe warning as well. Grace, even more grace, is given to the humble and repentant sinner. But you see, for those who would remain steadfast in their pride, who refuse to acknowledge their sin, who uh, revel in their spiritual adultery, and who would refuse to renounce their friendship with the world, the warning to them is that they will be opposed by God. They'll be opposed because in their hard-hearted and sinful persistence in self-idolatry, they will reveal themselves as no friend of God, but are foes and enemies of the sovereign Lord God, Creator of heaven and earth. And if they're enemies of God, well then His just judgment will surely come upon them. Friends, being a foe of God and opposed by Him is surely no good place to be. So brothers and sisters, this is a hard question to consider in your hearts even now. To consider as you evaluate what you profess and and how you live your lives. Is there a consistency between your profession of faith and in how you live? Or do you live in spiritual adultery? Are you a friend of the world putting you at odds with God? Are you an enemy and a foe and in danger of God's eternal wrath? Or are you a friend in need of more grace? And as you humble yourselves before Him, He will truly give it. And if you are a true friend of God, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, again, there is more grace which the Lord Jesus freely gives, even to His people, even to us, who are weary from the long journey and from engaging in daily battles with sin. He gives us more grace so that you can press on and persevere in your walk of faith, doing all that you do to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to You for Your Word. We thank You for this challenging reminder 
and this warning about spiritual idolatry. Lord, it's so easy to fall in love with the world and the pleasures of the world and all that the world has to offer. And yet, if we were able to see with clear eyes, we would see that such love for the world leads to destruction as it puts us at the odds with you who are the holy God, the creator of heaven and earth. And especially as those who are redeemed in Christ, we know it's a particular uh, foul offense that your people would turn to live the way of the world, forsaking you. And so even now, Father, we would come before you to humble ourselves, to confess before you our sin, to seek out your grace and your mercy for forgiveness, and to rest in your all-sufficient sustaining grace as we engage in those battles against sin and temptation each and every day, that you would give us great victory over the evil one and that we would turn our way from the world and its destruction and turn toward you and everlasting life. Father, we just praise you and thank you that you have given us this warning and this encouragement and this promise. And that especially your spirit, even now, working in our midst and our own hearts, would impress these truths upon us, drawing us all closer to yourself. Lord, we pray that for your glory and honor, that there would be a true consistency in what we profess and how we live. And we pray that you'd be glorified through our witness in how we live our lives and in the words that we speak as we seek to share the gospel with those in need to those who are headed in that path of destruction. We pray, Lord, that through that faithful witness, through us, you would help us to turn some back by your grace and the power of your Spirit working in them. We pray, Lord, that you would now bless these things in our own hearts, all to the praise of your glorious name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Um, speaks of, who would ask this question, who is the one who will reside in the Lord's tent? And of course we know that there is no mere man who could reside in that tent. And that ultimately it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly walked in this life. And But then as Christ uh, perfectly walked and as He gave Himself as that uh, perfect once for all sacrifice on the cross for our sins, that we who now have faith in Him and believe in Him, who have been washed and cleansed by His blood, forgiven by His Spirit, that we can now, in the grace of God, walk in holiness and uprightness, even dwelling in the house of our great God. So let's go ahead and stand to sing Psalm 15, Selection A.